Hello and welcome to The Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Doc Podcast. Today I have a very special guest with me appearing all the way from Australia. Dr. Shreen Lim is a Perth-based dentist with a postgraduate diploma in dental sleep medicine from the University of Western Australia. She's been involved in the team management of snoring and obstructive sleep apnea for over a decade. Dr. Lim is dedicated to promoting airway health from infancy as an alternative approach to minimize the development of the many problems that result from pediatric sleep disordered breathing and obstructive sleep apnea. She's also the author of an amazing and very well-written book titled Breathe, Sleep, Thrive. Discover how airway health can unlock your child's greater health, learning, and potential. And I will be sure to put a link to her book, uh, how you can purchase it in the show notes. Her work in private practice is restricted to tongue time management from infancy to adulthood, early interceptive orthodontics, and myofunctional therapy. So with that, I would like to welcome Shireen Lim to the show. Welcome to the Doc Podcast, Shireen. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Really appreciate your passion in getting this message out and so glad to be a part of it. Oh, well, you're welcome and thank you. I think it's awesome. Uh, uh, this is the one of the many benefits of technology is that we can hop on this call together from kind of across the world. So uh, that is, is so cool. And I also think it's pretty cool that even though we're on kind of opposite sides of the globe here, we, we have such a shared passion and shared interest. Um, and uh, and and can come together and and discuss that for the benefit of 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 everybody around the world. So, um, to start out, just tell me a little bit more about you, your background, kind of how you got to this this point in your life and your career, if you don't mind. Yeah, so I am a general dentist in private practice, and over a decade ago, it was my husband snoring that really frustrated me, uh, and it it was affecting my own sleep. So I did a lot of research about mandibular advancement devices. Okay. And I became one of Australia's first dentists to complete a graduate diploma in dental sleep medicine to wow. become qualified in the team management for adults with snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. Cool. But what I then started to realize is that we're actually offering a band-aid solution for mm -hmm. poor craniofacial development. And I wanted to know how we don't intervene earlier. So during the course, I came across Dr. Christian Gimeno's work on palate expansion, mm -hmm. how when we widen uh, the top jaw, we can actually get improvements in sleep and breathing. And mm -hmm. it, it made a lot of sense to me. Why don't we do this? Why are we waiting till age 12 for braces, taking out teeth quite often, uh, and not really dealing with the underlying jaw development problem? So that's how I got on that whole trajectory of learning about early orthodontic treatment okay. and intervening with the young children. And then I actually started to realize that early interceptive orthodontics around the age of eight years, we're actually missing the peak growth development, which is in the first six years of life. Uh, so we need to look deeper at what are the root causes of poor jaw development and try to address those early on, as well as optimizing uh, growth and development in those early years of life when children need good quality sleep. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Couldn't agree more. And that's, it's, very consistent uh, across probably every guest I've interviewed on the podcast and, and every colleague I've spoken with who shares the passion that we share. There is some personal tie to this that mm -hmm. got us, you know, you with your husband, um, you know, we've talked with Stacey Ochoa and she talked about with her dad and uh, then her own kids and, and myself with my own issues with with my airway and sinuses uh, when I was younger. And so I, I think um, 
it, it's something in us that we go through these struggles and then we start to think about things a little differently. And then we can't help but look at our patients and say, wait a minute, maybe there's things I could do that could help them so they don't have to suffer through these things um, that the way I did. So it, that's, that's great. And uh, obviously yeah. it's, it's created a passion. Yeah. In you. And having, having young children as well at that time, thinking, oh, I don't want my children to go down this path. Yep. There are things that can be done. Why do we need to wait? Uh, why do we have to wait till age 12 to apply braces? How come we can't treat earlier? I don't didn't want my children to go down that path. And it's quite difficult often to, to get a child in for early interceptive orthodontics. Uh, quite often you have that um, appointment and then it's a watch and wait come every yes. year. We'll just wait for further growth. And I, I didn't want that for my own children. So that was another part of uh, my motivation as well. Yeah, that is something I battle as an orthodontist, that dogma. Uh, I talk about it when I lecture and I talk about it in articles I've published that it is, it's, it's strong. And, and I don't, I think we could debate as for a long time about the genesis of it and why it is, but it is. And um, it's very pervasive. And, and unfortunately, in, in orthodontic residencies across America, at least I can speak for, uh, that have had interactions with and taught in, it's just not something that's really discussed. And not only airway, um, but just interceptive treatment being more aggressive on and acknowledging that there's a huge role that interceptive treatment can play. And as Stacey and I have talked about in some of our episodes, I mean, it goes back 100 years. We've known that if we get at these young faces when they're really young, we can mm -hmm. do things with them that not only are easier, are uh, more effective, less invasive, but will be preventative and will be more well care, proactive care versus reactive care. So I'm excited to kind of talk to you about a lot more about that. Um, before we do, just take a minute. I've got your your book here. Um, it is awesome. Uh, Breathe, Sleep, Thrive for anybody who wants to pick up a copy. Uh, it, I, it is well worth it. It is really well done. Uh, I was saying to Shireen as we were talking prior to the episode that I I just I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But it is really what's really neat about it is it's written from a, a perspective that a layperson can understand as well. But it has a ton of references. I looked. It's almost two hundred references that you put into this book, and uh, really really quality references as well from both the medical and the dental literature, which I thought was just phenomenal. Uh, and you wrote it in a way that a parent could pick it up and a parent could read it and understand it, yet it's also very scientific. So tell me a little bit more about a little bit more about your journey with your book. Yeah, so when I started to learn early interceptive orthodontics and wanted to be able to offer it into the practice during the regular active maintenance or routine dental appointments to try to convey all this information to parents is pretty overwhelming, mm -hmm. especially because we've participated in referring patients for the orthodontist, watchful waiting, and then helping to take out the teeth at age 12 for <laughs> yeah. other siblings. How do we kind of tell parents we want to try something different and what are the full impacts? It's not an easy conversation. So I wanted to put it all together and have something that parents could take home and digest properly it was actually a six-year process six um, years I believe it I, I, it's it's yeah. that in-depth that I am not surprised but which is okay because during that six years there was so much increased supporting research and understanding which really mm -hmm. helped to connect a lot of dots in a more strong basis um, but you know because when we do something different there's a lot of resistance from orthodontic leaders and yep. <laughs> you know, yep. people really want to put yep. you down for it yeah. so I was of the frame of mind that I'm always having to defend myself. What is the evidence? What, you know, why am yeah. I doing what I'm doing? And 
when I thought I'd finished the book, it came out very textbook, um, okay. which I really wanted a book for parents. So I had a lot of coaching through the process. Uh, so then I had to go backwards and mm. really think about more how I would talk to a parent in the room yeah. uh, to make less, less textbook. So yeah. that was quite challenging to be told you're too doctorish and to not really understand how to get around that. So, yes, it did, did take me a long time, but it was well worth it, I think, because it is more layperson. Mm-hmm. Other providers are actually recommending it to their uh, patients as well. Yeah, I I completely, uh, it's evident uh, from, from <laughs> what, what you just said, that you you had the technical side, and that makes sense now hearing that from you, how you blended that technical side and the and the layperson side and patient side and parent side, because as I read it, I kept thinking that to myself as somebody who, when I would present and talk about sleep-related breathing issues, airway issues, early interceptive treatment with my patients and their parents, there's a challenge there and how you can and kind of water it down so they understand it, but also remain technical enough so that they understand the severity of it and sort of the science behind it. And, and you walked that line beautifully. So uh, I recommend it both to any parents that, that would be listening and interested as well as, as providers and docs out there. Um, it really is great. Uh, the thing I want to start to do is just take this opportunity with this episode to go through why this is important. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about this in our profession, in our professional circles, we debate it, whether or not there's validity in treating these cases young, how young to treat them, what you're really looking for, whether a dentist, orthodontist, physician should be the one making the uh, detection of the symptoms and signs and diagnostics or treatment plans and so forth. So there's all these opinions coming in and I'm really working hard with the, this platform to kind of distill that down. So I wanted to take a moment to go first before we start diving into some things like the importance of nasal breathing, why mouth breathing can be a significant problem uh, and the associated comorbidities and issues. One thing I think it's really important to clarify, and I see this all the time when I talk to colleagues about it, when I talk teach residents about it, uh, certainly when you talk to, to parents, the difference between sleep disordered breathing and obstructive sleep apnea, of which is a OSA is kind of a parameter within the spectrum of sleep disordered breathing. Take a moment, if you would, to talk about your thoughts on that and and whether you found the same thing, that there's kind of everybody conflates the two and they think that any breathing disorder, any orthodontist who's dealing with breathing or dentist is thinking of it as, oh, you're treating obstructive sleep apnea, you're diagnosing obstructive sleep apnea. Instead of the conversation of, no, we're actually looking for sleep disorder breathing or sleep-related breathing disorders. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, that is such a good point because a lot of the time the resistance will be there's no evidence that orthodontic treatment can help with obstructive sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. But obstructive sleep apnea is an uh, end-stage disease. Um, It's it's characterized by prolonged pauses in breathing, Mm -hmm. and you have to meet a certain number for, mm-hmm. for a child, one per hour of sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is with children, children don't tend to get obstructive sleep apnea because the sympathetic nervous system is quite active and very responsive to mm-hmm. any time there is a, a limitation of airflow. So children will tend to uh, react whenever there's that obstruction. Mm-hmm. They will toss and turn and grind their teeth. Uh, and keep moving around just to do anything that they can to keep their airway open. So they may not necessarily be getting pauses in uh, the breathing and the oxygen uh, deprivation, but they're getting very restless and fragmented sleep. It's very non-restorative. 
And the symptoms that those children are getting is actually quite similar to obstructive sleep apnea. Mm. There is a very similar presentation. And so we know that the research tells us that even children with snoring uh, are going to have uh, some changes in their gray matter. They're going to have reduced volume and they're going to be also in at increased risk of behavioral and neurocognitive problems as well. And it's not just snoring, it's all the way back to mouth breathing. So problems really begin when yes. mouth breathing starts. Yes, I just And so that, yeah. we know with the Karen Bonnock study mm -hmm. uh, of 11,000 children, that even mouth breathing within those first few years of life, it may be linked to uh, irreversible increases in uh, risk of behavioral problems. Mm -hmm. And so recently there was a study on ADHD type symptoms in mouth breathing children. So we're not even examining um, obstructive sleep apnea or snoring, it's mouth breathing alone. There's a high prevalence of ADHD type symptoms. And so when we're really going by the numbers alone, what we're really missing is parents. What are their problems or concerns with their child? Right. Uh, so, you know, in the practice, we see parents, they've had adenoids and tonsils removed, but their child is still snoring or still yes. teeth grinding, still mouth breathing. What are we going to do for those children? Right. Because they're not functioning. Right. Their behavior, their emotional regulation is not great. Bedwetting, uh, really, it, it's creating a lot of problems for families, yes. like children, they're having to walk around on eggshells. They really know that their child is not functioning to the best of their ability, and it's really affecting uh, their day time management. So we can't just look at the numbers. We have to really listen to our patients and really understand that obstructive sleep apnea is an end-stage problem. And if we want to help children go well, we really need to address those uh, symptoms and try to go for, for health, which is nasal breathing being, being a very key part of good health and good sleep. Well said, and well said. Um, and in a moment, I want to get in more to the nasal breathing side of things and, and how that translates to the importance of it and how that translates to, to good health and good sleep, or I guess say good sleep and good health. Um, polysomnography. So uh, my opinion on that, and then I want to hear your take. And again, I say this when I lecture and teach I've, in other podcast episodes, I've addressed some of this, but the parameters were developed. You know, it is the gold standard for detecting obstructive sleep apnea, right? I think we all agree that is kind of in adults. <laughs> that is the standard for adults. We can debate about how those standards were set and the, the population that they examined for that. But ultimately, that's what's used today in medicine to make a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. But what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, and what, what my thoughts on it are as well, and I concur, is to extrapolate the adult data, which is my knowledge is, is, as always, I haven't seen anything that says that that's not what happened, that they, there are no clinical trial studies that I know of that said they actually examined the parameters that they use now for kids. Like you said, one to one episode to five or whatever it is, is mild. And it's basically just a, a third, I think almost of the adult parameters ish half to a third of the, of the episodes of, uh, apneas and hypopneas per hour of sleep. But like you said, you have to have cessation of breathing for at least 10 seconds or more, right? You have to have these long pauses and stops. And based on the sympathetic nervous system of the pediatric patient, they react differently when that airway is obstructed and when the oxygen is shut off to the brain. So we're really kind of missing the boat. And like you said, number one, I, I completely agree. It OSA anyway is end stage disease. Like that's a huge part of it just to begin with. But then you look at the fact that we don't even really know what we're measuring in these kids when we're talking about polysomnography. And then the, the other part of that, and anybody who's been out there and practiced in the real world or had kids, 
it's not easy to get a you know to incorporate going to a sleep lab. They, they're trying to make it easier, and it used to be even not that long ago in the U.S. they had to be in hospitals, and now they have nicer facilities for that. But depending on where you live, there might not be a sleep lab right nearby, and you've got to then travel, maybe get a hotel room, stay with your child in this place. You might have other kids at home. What if you're a single parent? The logistics of just saying that oh, unless this child has a uh, AHI index that qualifies them as having obstructive sleep apnea on the scale, then you really shouldn't be doing anything about it uh, because they don't have a problem. And I just find that so objectionable and so sad because like you said, if that's your kid and they're mouth breathing even, or just light snoring, heavy snoring, having disrupted sleep and they're having disrupted oxygen exchange during their sleep. Mm-hmm. And think of how upsetting that can be as a parent. And I know parents that have had this happen when you're told, number one, they're not severe enough. They're, they're not, they don't have a problem, right? Yet you see your kid you're gasping for air at night, but they didn't register on the scale in, in the mm-hmm. PSG. And number two, there's really nothing we can do about it anyway. So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? I mean, am I off base on that or is that, has that been your finding as well? Yeah, I, I don't think sleep studies are often sensitive enough Mm -hmm. and to use that to decide whether we're going to do treatment or not we're going to miss a lot of children that are actually not uh, doing well and oh I don't want to misquote it but because I haven't referred to it for a while but in my book um, on the chapter on sleep studies there's actually a paper by Dr. Christian Mm Gimeno and so for instance um, the adult criteria for hypopnea or a partial obstruction Mm -hmm. it has to have a desaturation of four percent but Dr. Christian Gimeno found that children are more sensitive to this disturbed breathing. And so he developed the Stanford criteria. So children have to reach 3%, not 4% desaturation. Mm-hmm. And so I think out of the 99 children in this, uh, I think only barely any of them had a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. But then when he used his own sensitive criteria, all of them did. Mm-hmm. And all of them had adenotonsillectomy. And then there was about 42 children or along those lines of children that were medicated for stimulants or headache Mm -hmm. medication, uh, hypnotics, and quite a large number of them were then able to get off their medication. So when we treat the airflow limitation, uh, regardless of whether or not it's obstructive sleep apnea, a lot of children are going to be able to function better and get off their medications. And, And that's what's really important to parents. Completely. And I can't tell you how many parents I've spoken with in my practice. And one, I had a a podcast episode with a mom. Um, I can put a link to it here uh, in the show notes for this, but I'm a mom of a six-year-old patient. uh, And, and she tells a story. She and dad, dad came on for a little bit as well. Uh, Dad's a certified registered nurse anesthetist and understands airway (laughs) better than probably a lot of Mm -hmm. dental and and, and orthodontic practitioners. Um, And what exactly what you said, I mean, the the helplessness that they feel, the the issues these children are having, which we're going to get a lot more get a lot more into and dive deeper into, but the chain, the ability to take them off their meds, I heard it all the time that the parents and she she's saying it on literally on camera, saying like this is what happened, like three four months in, all of a sudden I had a different kid and we're off the meds and mm-hmm. the ENT's like how did this happen? Um, so yeah, we hear about that all the time, and as you said, when it's your child uh, or it's it's your family member, it 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 it's real. It's not just some kids you're seeing in the chair looking at their teeth saying oh you know they're a little crowded but we can probably wait well well why and we're gonna we're gonna talk more about that so take a moment if you would talk about 
let's go into more detail on why nasal breathing is important. Why does it matter? Um, breathe through your mouth, you breathe through your nose, getting oxygen in either way, right? Why is it important or beneficial to get it in through your nose? Yeah, so well, the the nose is specially designed to warm, filter, sterilize, humidify the air. So mm -hmm. obviously that's really important to reduce uh, the respiratory infections and including ear infections. Mm -hmm. And we know that when we breathe through the nose, we will have uh, para the paranasal sinuses produce nitric oxide. And yep. so when that's incorporated, it improves oxygen exchange as well. So there's a lot of benefits in terms of why our nose is designed for breathing. Mm -hmm. um, but when we breathe with our mouth closed, um, our tongue is going to be positioned better, like up as well. It's going to promote um, like better muscle tone and mm -hmm. habits. And so when we do have mouth breathing and open mouth posture, low tone, it is actually a catapult to other myofunctional disorders with chewing, swallowing, uh, and even speech disorders. Yeah. But one of the particular reasons why it's important during children, childhood is because it actually promotes better facial development. Mm -hmm. We tend to get more forward growth rather than downward and backwards growth. Mm -hmm. And I also think anyone can tell that if you try to snore, for instance, with your mouth open, and with your mouth closed, it's a lot more smooth when we close our mouth. So mm -hmm. we're going to get our better as well. Yep. Yeah. And that's, I, I say in my lectures, a lot of times nasal breathing begets nasal breathing. You know, as you breathe through your nose more, you develop those paranasal sinuses, the nasal passageways. Um, mm -hmm. You you develop uh, the anatomy that facilitates the ability to breathe more through your nose. And the nose, it, it, as you said, it, it performs so many important functions. Uh, I love what you said about the nitric oxide in the sinuses, um, because it's a huge part of, of purif I said, purifying the air. A lot of people don't even realize that. Mm -hmm. Conversely, you open your mouth to breathe. And as somebody who battled sinus problems, maybe again, where I started to learn more of this earlier before I even knew I was really going to be applying this to my patients. But whenever I would have a sinus infection to be obstructive, Boy, if it if it wasn't then that 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 asthma asthma symptoms and and respiratory distress started to set in, right? Why mm -hmm. I'm breathing? My problem is allergies. I'm breathing all of this unfiltered, unpurified air um, into your lungs, and mm -hmm. you're re you're already reacting to the allergies. That's why your sinuses have problems, and now your lungs are reacting. So the physiology and the pathophysiology are, are very clear on this. Uh, and again, mm -hmm. I, I think it's. It's so great that you call attention to it, both for the to the parents and and to the the docs out there, because a lot aren't aware of it. A, a, a lot of, of of dental providers I know with one hundred and ten percent certainty they are simply not aware of it. So um, yeah, so I, I think that that's a great explanation. It, let's talk as well about some of the things that obstruct it. So go into a few, if you would, of how that process starts, where people go from being some of the ways, as many, obviously, they go from being nose breathers to being mouth breathers. Yeah. So I think that allergies play an important role. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of congestion and we don't address that. Uh, we can develop the habit of keeping our mouth open yep. and nasal disuse. Uh, yep. When we breathe through our nose, our nose is clearer. Uh, but if we develop that habit of mouth breathing, we're going to get that perception of more nasal congestion and yeah. obstruction. So that can become a, a pattern. Also, uh, when we have, for instance, babies, when they have their mouth open, mm -hmm. um, 
If that is not really addressed, we know that they're probably going to become a mouth breather in that first year of life as well. So the muscles play an important role. From infancy, if we have good tongue to palate suction or that seal, Mm -hmm. mechanically it's easier to just close your mouth and it prevents mouth breathing when we have that good tongue to palate seal. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we have a lower tongue posture, Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, sometimes with tongue ties, or low muscle tone, mm-hmm. or uh, we, we are going to tend to have that open mouth posture. Mm-hmm. The other thing is um, high palate. Uh, if we have a high palate, that is increased resistance to nasal mm-hmm. breathing. Mm-hmm. And so when we have, uh, I see a lot of infants for tongue tie release. Um, sometimes I can see they've got a very high arch palate. Yeah. I know that child's on that trajectory where they're going to have mouth breathing, adenoids, tonsils, ear problems. Um, So I think that it is very important to recognise that the palate plays a very structural, Mm -hmm. uh, very important structural role in nasal breathing. And if that's really underdeveloped or there's some degree of underdevelopment, it's linked to having uh, limitation of airflow to some degree and not to overlook that. Because when we want to restore nasal breathing, palate expansion is very effective to help remove the nasal airway, reduce the resistance, and then give that child the capacity to relearn that. Yeah, and that's that vicious cycle. You know, uh, the things that you said are are so interrelated and interconnected, Mm -hmm. right? The the palate's high and vaulted. Well, then the tongue is going to have a more inferior tongue posture and fall more posteriorly when they're lying down supine. And then obviously the high vaulted palate and the opposite of the the palate superior to that is the floor of the nose. And so if the Mm -hmm. palate is narrow and high and vaulted, then the floor of the nose is going to be more narrow and nasal volume can decrease. So uh, the turbinates have less space. So in the, that can stunt their development. So there's all of these concurrent symptoms. One other um, that I know you talked about in the book about lymphoid tissue. And it was actually interesting when I was reading about it uh, in, in your book. So whether it's hypertrophy, the adenoid tonsils, both, you kind of were talking a little bit about the traditional theory um, that it was just kind of inflammatory. Uh, you know, so why, why do adenoids on or tonsils on one patient become hypertrophied, enlarged, obstructive, and and not another. And to what degree is that attributable to what environmental factors or so forth, but viruses, allergies, cigarette smoke, secondary cigarette smoke, acid reflux, et cetera. A lot of those can be causes of, we, we thought for a long time, and, and I think probably still would agree they, they have a, a role in it, but there's something else that, that you talked a little bit about regarding, um, the poor nasal airflow. So I don't know if you want to go into that a little bit as well. Yeah, thank you for bringing it up because yeah. I believe that this is a different perspective that we all need to be able to look at. Uh, you know, traditionally it's thought that the enlarged adenoids and tonsils created uh, poor breathing. Um, but what if the poor breathing preceded the enlargement of the adenoids and tonsils? Right. So uh, Dr. Howard Stepak, he's an ENT slash facial plastic surgeon. He's published a whole textbook and uh, published about his hypothesis mm-hmm. that the root issue is some sort of subclinical deficiency in maxillary development. Mm-hmm. And when we have that uh, reduction in the palate, it's linked to increased resistance in to nasal airflow. Mm-hmm. And so when we have this, we are going to have to breathe and so as we breathe harder, it's like sucking on a straw, sucking quite hard on a straw, we're going to get collapse of mm-hmm. the airway. And this cre- the negative 
pressure, it actually swells the tissues inwards um, and that can contribute to the enlargement of the adenoids and tonsils. Yeah. And so this can explain why so many children uh, after they've had their adenoids and tonsils out still have breathing problems and why palate expansion can be a very good adjunct to help to restore normal breathing. And so now we even have research by Dr. Audrey Yoon and team mm -hmm. yep. that um, during COVID, some of the children needed adenoid tonsillectomy. They weren't able to get it, but they were able to start with a palate expansion. Mm -hmm. And they've demonstrated that there is objective uh, reductions in the volume of the adenoids and tonsils. And this is correlated with improvements in the sleep symptoms. And so what that's telling us is that we don't always need to jump in to do the adenoids and tonsils in the first instance, uh, because that palate may be a root issue. So it's just to pay attention to that area. Now, the other thing that I think that we shouldn't overlook as well is when we breathe hard and we get those negative pressures, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of reflux. Children are having a lot of airway reflux where their stomach contents may aerosolize into their throat. Mm -hmm. And that could actually also lead to the irritation and the enlargement of adenoids and tonsils. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking really closely when I look at the occlusal photos of children and we scroll in, we can really see a lot of erosion mm -hmm. in these children. Yep. Uh, and some of these children, when we ask the parents, yes, they may be throat clearing <coughs> or chronic cough, mm -hmm. yep. nasal drip. Some children will have spew burps. They can actually taste the the you know, the, some vomit and they sort of swallow it down. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's really overlooked. Um, a lot of children having multiple decays, lots of decays, and parents are saying that the diet's not really bad. Mm -hmm. There's this presence of acid inside yep. the mouth. Uh, and that when we have teeth grinding, you know, it's a strong red flag for breathing disturbance. Mm -hmm. But enamel is being so strong. Why are we seeing significant tooth wear of that enamel? Yes, I think that acid reflux plays a role. And I think it comes down to that increased resistance in nasal airflow mm. from that maxilla being underdeveloped. And uh, that can contribute to adenoids and tonsil irritation as well. So I, I do think that we need to be paying more attention to it and really recognizing that this palette, uh, yeah, it, we need to address it. Yeah. And and, and that's such an research interesting... Supports that. Oops, sorry, what was that? Oh, yeah. The research supports that adenotonsillectomy is not curative. Right. Uh, you know, many children persist with their mouth breathing. And I so. saw those all the time in practice where they would come in mm -hmm. and they would say, uh, actually, one of the ones that was in the Orthotown article that that I published part two, dad is a physician and patient had her had her tonsils and adenoids removed. And dad mm -hmm. could not figure out why this child was still snoring. Uh, and he's mm -hmm. like, it improved. And you hear this all the time. It gets better. Right away, they kind of get this nice rebound effect from it because obviously this mm -hmm. obstruction is relieved. So you mm -hmm. hear parents say, you know, for a few months, we, we, we it was great. And all of a sudden, we're like, geez, they're snoring again. And some of the signs and symptoms of that were coming back. Well, this dad, when he, uh, after I went in and I said, you know, okay, well, let's see what we can do. And we went in and there was a little, you know, there was definitely some regrowth of the adenoids. And it was a little, you know, her, her uh, nasopharyngeal airway was a little bit obstructed. She was super narrow, those classic V-shaped arches and really narrow, insufficient tongue space. We went in, we helped her grow, we expanded her arches. And next thing you know, within six months, she's 
breathing soundly through her nose and dad a, a physician was just in disbelief he's like wait a minute mm -hmm. and he was one of the people those stories are what motivated me to really go into the teaching side of this all in because they just kept saying you have why are you the only orthodontist doing this why mm -hmm. isn't anybody else seeing this and talking like this and doing this and i said it's just I don't know, <laughs> but uh, I decided, you know, it's going to be my mission to try to, to try to change that. So it's such, it's such a good point. And that's a great point about the reflux and these other irritants that are there. And it's funny that in the podcast with Stacy, I talked about the Holtzman article from 1929, I believe it was, where he talked about the positive airway pressure uh, that, or the, that you get this sort of pressure mm -hmm. system built by the tongue suctioning to the roof of the mouth. And then the no, the air coming in through the nose and creating this pressure that that can can help keep the nasal uh, passageways patent as well as minimize mm -hmm. overgrowth of lymphoid tissue like mm -hmm. we're a hundred years later and, and we're yeah. still arguing that this is actually a thing you say it to a lot of orthodontists they're like there's no way so uh that ties mm -hmm. obviously into the, the the palatal side of it as well and and the expansion side. And one of the other things I want to hit on, I know, again, you talked about it in the book, but um, the allergic rhinitis component, uh, just how prevalent that is now. I mean, it's, it's huge. And there's a, a study uh, that I'll quote a lot of times. Um, it was done in 2019. It was 544 children. They were three years to 10 years of age. They found that the prevalence of terminal mm -hmm. hypertrophy in children with allergic rhinitis was 81%. So we find that these kids that have allergic rhinitis, and actually in your book, you quoted another study I like with the uh, Institute for Allergy and Asthma, that the um, that 40% of all children uh, are suffering from allergic rhinitis. So you've got almost half of the kids have some sort of allergic response in their nasal passageways. And then of those, 80% or 81%, obviously, in this study, uh, four-fifths, four out of five, are suffering from some sort of turbinate hypertrophy as a result, so you have a huge percentage of your patients, anybody treating children has a huge percentage of their patients who right off of those numbers, we didn't even talk about whether it's led to changes in craniofacial growth and development or lymphoid tissue, or maybe this patient has deviated septum as well, or chronic sinusitis, all these other things that, that can obstruct nasal breathing. That's just allergic rhinitis, uh, turbinate hypertrophy secondary to allergic rhinitis. So the fact that we as dentists and orthodontists are kind of putting our heads in the sand on that a little bit as a profession and saying, well, that's not really our area. No, it is. Um, I had an attorney on the podcast, Eric Plumas, a little while back, and we were talking about cone beams and whether we should be taking them or not. And you know, he clearly said it is our area is, you know, sort of from forehead, top of the forehead to under the neck. Like that is our area, all of it. And uh, we have the, our, our license gives us the right and the responsibility to look in that entire area. And I think that's part of the reason why some people shy away from 3D imaging, because um, obviously the radiation levels have gotten so low now, because I don't know, sometimes it's just, and I don't mean this to be critical of colleagues, but I just really feel it's the case in talking to people. It's easier not to see it and kind of almost act like it's not there um, than, to, than to know it's there. Because once you know it's there, uh, I had an oral surgery colleague of mine um, when I was in upstate New York practicing that said, once you see airway, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And I just love that because it is mm -hmm. so true. I've never met anybody who yeah. really sees it and saw mm -hmm. what they were able to do in these kids and how they could help mm -hmm. them and their families that could mm -hmm. ever unsee it. And mm -hmm. yet I know a lot of people who refuse to see it 
And those mm-hmm. are the people that tend to kind of keep keep uh, keep blinders on uh, in regards to it. So um, anything else you want to add into that before we kind of get more into the consequences of mouth breathing and, and what the what the it leads to? Yeah, no, allergies. Uh, there was a one large study on Brazilian study on mouth breathing children uh, and several hundred of them. And they actually found the most common cause was allergies. Mm. Yeah. for nasal uh for mouth breathing it's it wasn't in contrast you know deviated septums they weren't there weren't any that were truly obstructive mm. uh adenoids and tonsils were a, a much lower percentage but yep. it was those allergy allergies that were about 80 percent the most common finding uh so we know that palate expansion i i think that in the 1970s there was some perf research uh, in Perth, which is where I'm from, mm-hmm. there was a 2,000 children in the 70s that were expanded solely for the purpose of improving nasal breathing. It's a great um, study, by the way. Yes. Yeah, it wasn't even to do with whether or not the child had crossfire. Mm-hmm. 2,000 children in my community, yet we have not really progressed that. Uh, and then published <laughs> 310 consecutive cases. And really, the children had problems like deviated septum, recurrent ear problems, allergic rhinitis, asthma. So Mm -hmm. they were the main indications for treatment. And 90% of those children were able to have nasal breathing. So -hmm. when it comes to allergies, you know, a lot of the time, yes, we want to do nasal sprays and clear the nose. Um, But I also think that let's not overlook palate expansion Mm -hmm. as uh, intervention to help restore nasal breathing. I think that's one of the really key messages uh, from it. And I think earlier when you were speaking, the other thing that I was thinking about was my daughter, like I, listening to the parents and and the concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, she had adenotonsillectomy, which mm-hmm. kind of helped with it. She didn't have to come into the room in the middle of the night with unexplained awakenings. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one thing that resolved. But uh, bedwetting, um, she was still bedwet still had teeth grinding. Uh, she was getting at age six a little bit self-conscious about having to get the pull-ups at the shops as well. Mm-hmm, and so sure. I knew she wasn't getting a good sleep. And so at that time, uh, she was my youngest child that I did pelvic expansion for. Mm-hmm. So at age six, you know, a bit fearful. I just thought I'm going to do it mm-hmm. uh, because why? what's the difference between a seven to eight-year-old mm-hmm. and a six-year-old? Yep. Uh, and her palate, it wasn't even particularly gutter. It was pretty... Not not super high, mm-hmm. uh, but I did it. And yes, that was a thing that actually helped eliminate the teeth grinding. And there is research to suggest that that can actually help uh, for teeth grinding. Um, so I think, yeah, that that is really um, one thing that got, got me starting to think about it. Why does there have to be a cutoff age? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I agree. Yeah. yeah so um, we want children to function well in those earliest years of life because that's when all the risks are occurring. Yeah, and, and they may not really necessarily grow out of it. It can affect that the way that their brain development, their behavior develops. So yeah, why do we need to to wait? Yeah. So yeah, that's something that I was thinking about as you were speaking. Yeah, I, I can I agree completely. And I yeah. think uh, even though I never did it younger myself, uh, I in having these interviews, talking to people such as yourself. Yeah, why? Why wait? And 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 you know why? Okay, the American Association of Orthodontists recommends age seven that children have a screening, and I know that's to coincide. I assume. I guess I don't really know if that was based off of studies or just kind of that. That tends to be the the age when the the most kids have at least a couple of their six year old molars erupting, if not all four. Probably got some incisor permanent incisors in there. You're starting to see how much incisor liability you have, how much crowding you have. 
mm-hmm. there's posterior crossbite. So it's kind of a convenient age. But one of the problems is, as orthodontists and our residencies, we're not taught how to treat kids young. We're mm-hmm. really hardly taught how to treat kids seven, to be honest. One mm-hmm. of the hardest things when I came out almost 20 years ago and started my practice from scratch, one of the hardest things was the fact that the patients I was seeing in residency, which when they were like seven, eight, nine years old, we, mm-hmm. because we scored them on in, in the US, it's this, it's the Saltzman index. And it's for a lot of the patients we saw in our clinic were on state funding. And so to get them covered for their braces for the orthodontic treatment, the, the criteria mm-hmm. essentially excluded any of the primary teeth. Mm-hmm. So we had this situation where you might have somebody who has, you know, terrible crowding and all these other issues, but if they're in the early mixed dentition, you probably weren't going to get them covered. So you ended up by default, they became a serial extraction case. Mm-hmm. You really didn't have a choice. You didn't talk mm-hmm. about airway. And again, think about how we have to change the mindset here from a, from a sick care reactive to a, a health wellness promoting mentality that's, that's proactive. But we didn't talk about airway. We didn't talk about tongue space. There was nothing. We, we literally mm-hmm. looked and we said, will this kid score enough to get coverage? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's start pulling teeth because Medicaid would cover and, and state covered insurance would cover the extraction of however many teeth you needed pulled. Mm-hmm. So the system is set up that way in orthodontic mm-hmm. education. A few residencies out there that I know of have a decent amount of interceptive treatment, but the vast majority have little mm-hmm. to none, have little to none. Mm-hmm. There's residents that come out that never did a phase one. I know mm-hmm. I interviewed some to come into my practice as, mm-hmm. as prospective docs to join me in practice. They, they never even did a phase one. So mm-hmm. then you tell these, these orthodontists, well, yeah, now we're going to start treating them even younger, you know, maybe three, <laughs> four. They don't even yeah. know how to treat a seven-year-old. And I, again, I don't mean that as an indictment or to be, you know, harsh. I just, it's kind of the reality of it. And I'm, I was there myself. It was the single hardest thing I had to do. Now, I was very fortunate that a professor of mine, Fred Ferguson in, at Stony Brook, where I did my dental school training, he was just amazing at teaching us how to handle children and especially mm-hmm. children with special needs. So I had developed skills in dental school, how to handle that age population. So I felt very comfortable pushing the envelope with younger kids and going and you know, t- taking these kids even six or seven and putting expanders in their mouths and so forth. But I know orthodontic colleagues, they have no desire to do it. Um, they just, it's it's very, the whole thought to them is just not what they want to do. They want to be doing braces on, on older kids. So that is yeah. a problem. It is definitely a problem. Yeah. I, I definitely feel that because even me being in the, that same shoes, I have treated or expanded children as young as three and a half years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, prior to being involved in this whole area, we had a practice where none of us wanted to see children and parents would go, oh, can we bring our children in? And no one in our practice wanted to <laughs> see children. It was just really cringy yeah. for the front office team to have to deal with. Yeah. But yes, it does involve different ways and learning how to work with children and getting them on board. Um, yeah. yeah. So I can totally appreciate it. Yeah. It was scary to work with children in the past, but yeah. now it's, I'm used to it. My problem isn't if an orthodontist or a dentist doesn't want to treat kids fine. I'm not, I'm not here to tell anybody how they should run their practice or what patients they need to treat. We all have the right to pick and choose the types of cases that we feel fit our skill set and our ability level best. Where I have the problem and draw the line is when people are very critical of those who do want to do mm-hmm. it and find that they're able yeah. to have that change. And I really think it comes back to be the referral patterns. I feel orthodontists, by and large, 
are very nervous that especially if general practitioners and pediatric dentists start treating these kids younger, then they are never going to refer them to the orthodontist because they become your patient, not our patient. I don't have any evidence of that. It's just, I talk to a lot of colleagues. I keep my finger on the pulse of this profession. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot in my 20 years of practice. Um, and I just get a feeling that that's a big thing. So it's easier to kind of mock it and, and shun mm -hmm. those who do it and try to label them as outcasts and outliers and not operating within the science and there's not research and so forth. And as I said to Stacy, I've never seen research that says that if you try to help a three or four year old grow, that it causes any harm. I've never seen research that it's ineffective, mm -hmm. right? So it goes mm -hmm. both ways. You, you can't just sit there and, and cast stones and say, oh, there's nothing saying this works because there's also nothing saying it doesn't work. So I think mm -hmm. we both could agree more studies need to be done at the same mm -hmm. time. If you have empirical data and you're doing no harm and you're helping your patients, last time I checked, there was no rules against that in what, in, in, <laughs> at least in the, the, the laws that we practice under here. I don't know if you, what your thoughts are on that. I think from some orthodontists, there may be some concern that they don't want children burning out. Uh, they don't want parents having to pay lots of money and then to need braces later on as mm -hmm. well. Uh, but I actually think that if you gave parents the choice, if we do this now, we're going to involve maybe more treatment and more follow-up, uh, but it may actually help with these current symptoms for the next few years. And they may still need braces. I cannot guarantee it. Yes. I think a lot of parents, if they're given the choice, they want to make their own decisions. That's and, such a great point. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is, that is such a great point. And, uh, and, and one we don't talk about enough, right? We talk about mm -hmm. like, we know so much, we know so much, it's our decision to make. It's our mm -hmm. decision to educate the parent. And like you said, it's so important. I always did this, my treatment coordinators were trained to do this. We were very clear that mm -hmm. performing this interceptive phase younger does not eliminate the need for a second phase. Now, does it sometimes? Yes. We would have parents say, is there a chance? Absolutely. But we can't predict that, but we mm -hmm. are going to get the bones in the right place. And when it was an airway problem, we're going to work with the ENT allergists, et cetera, to try to the, the medical team to try to help this patient get their, their, their breathing issues resolved. And then we're going to wait and watch them grow and they might need a second phase. So I think that's another big part of it. Mm -hmm. Educate them and, and let them decide. And mm -hmm. I agree with you. I mean, parents' acceptance of interceptive treatment, especially on these kids that you detected these airway problems on, I mean, I, I don't, it certainly wasn't 100%, but it, it wasn't too far from it. I mean, most parents, if they have the means to do it, are going to do that because like you said, mm -hmm. you're helping their child. And I mean, as a parent myself, that that what more do you want than that? Mm -hmm. And I think also there's what I'm starting to understand or what I see when I treat children younger and younger, it's just not the airway and breathing problems. There's so many more benefits in that. Uh, so I, I use the BioBlock expander typically um, that has the cat wires that actually help control the, the arch form, not just mm -hmm. the yep, yep, uh, yep, width. Yep. Um, so there are beautiful facial changes. Yes. And like you said, sometimes it's that V shape. We want to make U shape, yep. right? to yep. make more space for the tongue. Yep. And so I, what I'm also seeing is, well, we also know there's a lot of, there's more and more research su suggesting that malocclusion can contribute or is associated with speech problems. Yep. And so sometimes I see children that have had like two, three years of speech therapy, they've not gone anywhere. And then I do the palate expansion and I'm starting to video record uh, the way that they produce sounds is different when they have more tongue space. Wow, that's and awesome just, that you're video recording yeah, that. Yeah, and, and even things like, 
can we get the teeth in the right position periodontally? Is that better? Yeah. If we can get teeth erupting in the right position before the permanent teeth come through. So I, I kind of prefer five and a half to six years. That's my optimal age to do palate expansion. Uh, but then if we understand what promotes good facial development, we mm -hmm. need good tongue posture, tongue to palate suction and nasal breathing. Mm -hmm. Palate expansion can help with both of those uh, goals. So yes, I do think that there's a lot of reasons why we should consider early interceptive orthodontic treatment. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to people that say, should we watch for weight? Is there any evidence that it's vaccination against obstructive sleep apnea? That's the totally wrong question. Uh, yeah, I I think that it's more than that. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think um, a couple of things you said that, that are so important. One is the tongue and making room for the tongue. And there was this sort of debate in one of our online Facebook groups recently over whether it happened to be an adult in this particular case, but why the transverse and whether you, you know, the, the space you create for the tongue, whether that has any relevance to, in this case, they were talking about obstructive sleep apnea, but again, the conflation of terms. I mean, I, you know, it could have just been sleep disordered breathing. But the point was this patient had a sleep related breathing disorder and mm -hmm. had had four buys extracted as a mm -hmm. child. And the orthodontist was asking about possibly expanding these arches to normalize the transverse relationship uh, and won't get into the details of whether they, they didn't get into the details actually of whether they were going to do the expansions of the uh, maxilla surgically or with like a Marpy type of approach, upright the lower, the lower teeth. Mm -hmm. But the point was they wanted to correct the transverse deficiency. And they were concerned and predicted, which would probably, I, you know, I would agree with, they're going to open up some space. <laughs> you know, we know when we increase the transverse, there's a, there's a positive impact on arch perimeter. So they were kind of, the question was posed, well, what do I do about those spaces? Has anyone done this? You know, I really didn't like to take the patient for four implants at that point. And oh my gosh, the, the, the gloves came off and it was, what are you even talking about? Expand extraction doesn't cause airway problems. And you know, if you expand, it's not going to do anything. This patient needs a, an MMA, a maxillary mandibular advancement. And there weren't even records posted. I mean, everybody without even seeing the case was like out for blood. So I put a couple of comments in just like, wait, 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 let's just number one, be professional about this. Like, <laughs> he's just posing a question. Let's just talk about this. And number two, the tongue space is hugely relevant in, in mm -hmm. airway. Uh, and I went back and forth with a couple of people a couple of times, but their big thing is, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's not, there's no causation there. It's more of a correlation. And that's what the data says. So what, what are your thoughts on tongue position, tongue space and um, sleep disordered breathing? Yeah. The tongue belongs lightly suctioned to the roof of the mouth. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good tone, impossible to mouth breathe. Uh, and why do we want the tongue toned? Because the bulk is the genoglossus, which is the most important upper airway dilator muscle. So when that works well, uh, it's going to keep the throat open and stable during sleep. When it doesn't work well, we can compensate during the daytime, but it's that tone uh, that's going to play out during sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we need space for the, for the tongue to fit. And even in children, when their mouth is too narrow and we make more room for the tongue, they can actually close their mouth better. So mm -hmm. they can actually nasal breathing yes uh, but you know your point about mma surgery yes maybe they do need mma surgery but if you look at the work of dr stanley Liu and his um updates to the stanford surgical sleep surgical protocol mm -hmm. uh we should also be considering the palate 
uh, as a stage one surgery if it's mm-hmm. not well developed. Mm-hmm. And so we know, for instance, that when we develop the palate, we can actually improve nasal airflow and that can alleviate obstructive sleep apnea because mm-hmm. when we can uh, breathe better, we don't have to breathe so effortfully and that can reduce the collapsibility of mm-hmm. the airway. Yep. But Dr. Eric Fuller has also done some work uh, using drug-induced sedation endoscopy, having mm-hmm. a look at the patterns of airway collapse in uh, OSA patients that have had foul treatments, including MMA surgery. Mm-hmm. And what is the common finding in those patients? It's a narrowed intermolar width. Mm-hmm. And those patients are going to have more base of tongue obstruction. Yep. So you yep. kind of got to get that palate correct that, that's as a exa- stage one procedure. That's exactly what I said in terms of, I'm not saying the patient doesn't need MMA. I actually said that. And I said, I don't, haven't seen the records. I don't know. I said, mm-hmm. but the patient could also be bimax protrusive and just incredibly narrow. And so why don't we fix and address the etiology? I, I, I mean, I was just stunned that people were saying, send this patient to an oral surgeon, MMA, and that's the end of it. And I mean, all these likes on that comment and mocking the people who thought differently. And I'm thinking, we don't even know what this patient looks like. Like you said, how can we ignore the transverse? How can we just say that an AP correction is going to solve this patient's problems? And as you said, maybe it's indicated. I mean, maybe they need that as well. However, mm-hmm. the venom that was <laughs> that was uh, palpable uh, from people who mm-hmm. were suggesting anything but MMA or that that there was wrong, you know, saying that it was wrong for this orthodontist to want to address the transverse and have a concern about the the dental ramifications of that, which could likely be space. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just, I was shocked by, because to me, it is very clear. Uh, again, you, you highlight it well in, in your book and in what you just said. Um, but, but I, I think we, we need to keep getting that message out that treat the etiology. And that's where I actually said in, yeah. in my post, I said, you know, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say extractions cause airway problems. I, I you know, I, I, I'm not sitting here to indict the removal of teeth as if you take teeth out on a patient, you're, you're sort of relegating them to a life of, of obstructive sleep apnea. And I know mm-hmm. no studies that have shown that, but what's the, it's, it's a bit of a misleading statement. It's the, it's the Mark Twain lies, damn lies and statistics. It's okay. No, you, you may not be causing the problem, but if mm-hmm. they have the problem, and they're narrow, and you mm-hmm. solve it by extracting teeth, you're not fixing the etiology and the problem. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, and I, I don't yeah. think we talk about that it that way enough. No, because, you know, there, there will never really be evidence to prove one way or then another right. concretely that the extractions affected obstructive sleep apnea. But, yeah, if they needed extractions, there's a very good chance that that palate or maxilla was underdeveloped yeah. and we missed that boat. Yeah. yeah. And so even with the adults, when it comes to the surgery, exactly what you said, we need precision mm-hmm. uh, and we need to do the least invasive procedures first. And so that's when uh, we cannot dismiss uh, treating the maxilla in isolation. And even if they need a stage two um, surgery yep. or MMA, yep. the results will be stable if we can get nasal breathing and the tongue to work well. Yep. Which I find completely in, in my interceptive treatment too. Uh, so many other things just naturally fall into place when you get tongue space and you develop those arches, uh, you just, and the stability is, is inherent. I mean, I used to retain 
or used meaning when I was practicing, but I would retain these cases and, and I would retain these cases with upper and lower Essex C plus. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. When I did, you know, was, was later treat later age and trying to do RPs when they're older and try to preserve that. And it wants to collapse and Hollies and bulky appliances. And if they miss even a little bit of time, you know, six months after you finished it, they're getting some collapse and the retainer doesn't fit. And you know, they're getting collapsed because they miss some time. They come in and they try to put the retainer in and it's too wide. Uh, whereas mm. I found these other patients, even if they stop wearing the retainer, which because they were so minimally invasive, most of the kids were wearing them at the bed and it wasn't an issue. Uh, but that arch form, you know, they might have had some incisors might have moved a little bit. And I did this or it was, it was with braces and wires kind of in that six to nine mm-hmm. age range instead of using turnkey expanders and develop those arches. And doing so, I saw these amazing broad arches, space for the tongue and so forth. And it just retained itself. It was, mm-hmm. it, which like you said, you know, when you're not targeting the etiology and getting space for that tongue, the stability is never going to be there. Yeah. I, and I think that when we create that space early on uh, and the, that dysfunction, the old dysfunction is not so uh, reinforced, mm-hmm. it's easier for children to develop better muscle patterns that will promote the stability of the results. And I'm not sure, like I've seen it, but I'm not sure if you see it more being an orthodontist, which people do get the jaw surgery. And that's not even a fix either. Yes, yes. You can get relapse of results and people are getting it done more than once. Can we not pay attention to this area? Yeah, yeah. And, and what they're, I mean, the facial changes. If you take somebody who's not mid-face deficient or retrognathic and or retrognathic, and you, I, we had one in my residency, was treated by a co-resident. And this patient ended up having major psychological issues after the surgery because of how different his face looked. Mm-hmm. He was an adult male. And he, you know, the, the, we went through everything. I actually helped the resident work the case up and we went through everything. He knew that this was potentially, we had just gotten dolphin back then. Dolphin was a new thing and the imaging, you could do, do the projections and we showed kind of what it might look like, but until they go home and they look in that mirror and then they live with that different face, it can be really challenging for people. And there's studies on that. And the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. perception of people's appearance post any orthognathic surgery, whether it was MMA for, for sleep issues yeah. or just for, mm-hmm. for occlusion. Um, so uh, I think we have to be careful of, of making sure that we're addressing the ideology. And back to your one of your initial points, which was if we can get at this when they're young and pliable, we're not even mm-hmm. having this conversation. And I get that, that I'm not applying that to all the adults out there now. I'm saying if we don't start to take this approach at some point, then we're going to keep having a fight over what's the best surgery for these patients who are mm-hmm. suffering uh, mm-hmm. and are, are, are maybe CPAP intolerant and, and have other issues mm-hmm. or can't tolerate an oral appliance and so forth and just putting Band-Aids on it as opposed to saying, well, when are we just going to throw our hands up and say, you know, we really mm-hmm. can't do anything about this. If they have crowding, take teeth out. OSA is what it is and sleep-related breathing disorders are what they are and the orthodontist, the dentist. I can't do anything about it. Uh, get the lymphoid tissue out if it's obstructive, but that's kind of the end of it. What do you say about that? I mean, the the people who, there's so many in our profession that have embraced this. There's so many in our profession like you and I who um, have engaged in a challenging discussion with colleagues, have pushed our own limits, have changed. I mean, I didn't learn this way. I had to learn it as I was practicing. I know you were just saying you did as well. It's not easy to do. You have to change your office systems. You have to change how you train your teams. There's a lot that goes into it. And I've been shocked at just how many, as I'm doing this more in our profession, 
agree with us. There's also a lot of people on the other side who are just absolute, this is black and white, and there's no place for the dentist or orthodontist in this arena. So as we start to kind of wrap it up, what, what do you think about where we're headed? Where is this headed from a professional standpoint uh, when you talk about our ability to detect the signs and symptoms of these sleep-related breathing disorders and then do something about it in younger patients? Yeah, I'm very hopeful for a, a very positive change in the future. I think, you know, I've been promoting this thinking for a long time and yeah, yeah ostracized and, <laughs> you know, people try to intimidate you, but like, I feel like now there's so many more people on the same page. And so I feel very positive for it. Even being able to have conversations with orthodontists like yourself, it just mm -hmm. doesn't happen for me back home. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I think that it's harder and harder to ignore. Those people will get left behind. There's more mm -hmm. people that want to know more mm -hmm. um, to help their patients. And they're the people that I'm going to focus on and really educating the public as well. Um, the, the public have concerns. People aren't listening to them. And so the book uh, has proved pretty popular. Uh, people are finding that it's connecting a lot of dots and mm -hmm. help empowering them to ask better questions and seek different providers. So, yeah, I feel pretty good about it. There, the research is growing, more attention to it. Um, yeah, so it's going to happen. <laughs> and thank you to your, you for your podcast and bring more and more people on board, the people that are interested to learn more. Uh, we're going to get that information out there for them. Oh, well, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. and, and thank you for that. And, and I, I agree. I, I have people reach out to me. Uh, they're optimistic. They, they're relieved that people such as yourself are talking about this and, and, mm -hmm. They have really selected the the people the naysayers have have by by like you said the the negative comments and the the um, sort of stones that have gotten cast the arrows in the back whatever whatever the case might be or all the above have really selected a pretty tough group of us you know those of a pretty resilient <laughs> group now that that are yeah. that are that are talking about this openly and mm -hmm. not afraid of the consequences because we know what it's done for our patients we know what mm -hmm. it can do for our patients in our profession. And I almost mm -hmm. look at the ones that are so against it. And I'm honestly, it's not anger. I'm not, I feel kind of bad for them. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm sad that I, I know what it did for me uh, emotionally to change my patients' lives the way it did when I started approaching mm -hmm. my treatment this way. Mm -hmm. And I practiced for a good number of years without doing this. So I know both. And I feel, I really feel sad for anybody who doesn't get that opportunity to have a parent literally just break down in tears of joy that you are mm -hmm. the first one that has actually figured out why their kid is still wetting the bed. And again, I want to be very careful. It's not like I'm saying, you know, I'm diagnosing that mm -hmm. uh, if a child has nocturnal enuresis, that it's always that you expand them and it goes away. I and mean, that's again, the things people try to put on us. That's not it at all. The point is, mm -hmm. is with disjointed sleep, there is a higher incidence of nocturnal enuresis. It's that's mm -hmm. inclusive mm -hmm. in the data. And if you improve their sleep of which figuring out their sleep related breathing disorder, working with your medical colleagues as needed and developing normal arch forms and space for the mm -hmm. tongue and promoting nasal breathing, you see that and many other things get better in these patients mm -hmm. and then the family's lives. And it is so rewarding. And it's why I'm so passionate about it. I, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast, sharing so openly, being an early advocate for this and taking a lot of arrows and, and staying tough and strong. And then through that, 
having the courage and confidence to write an amazing book. Uh, again, I suggest everybody get a copy of that. It really is great. And, and it helped me as much as I'm immersed in this. I learned a lot from that, just reading it and some things that just reinforced, which, which was really helpful as well. So I uh, really enjoyed the discussion. I just I looked, it flew by an hour, a little over an hour here, and I feel like we just started talking. So uh, anything else yeah. you want to you wanna add before, before we step away? No, th- th- thanks so much for having me, Mike. And, and I just think, yeah, let's just listen to our patients, listen to what they have to say about it. It's not always the evidence that we need to take care of. We need to help our patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's so true. And I think the more we do that and keep our patients as the focus of this, the more in time yeah. this is going to take care of itself. So for sure. yeah, well, all thanks right. so much, Shereen. It's been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you and all you do. And, and thanks for being on the doc podcast. Thanks, Mike. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Take care. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for watching this episode of the Doc Podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to ADA SERP recognized CE courses or to schedule a private one-on-one coaching session with me. And remember to join the Doc community on Facebook for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Facebook, search for the Doc community and request admission into the group. You can also find Doc on Instagram at at the ortho coach. And always remember, you have been blessed with the ability to do amazing things.